In its quest to provide an open forum for discussion of controversial issues, this station allows hosts and their guests to express themselves without any significant censorship. You're advised that any views expressed by the hosts or their guests are not necessarily the views of Tuggy Entertainment or its partners. with us on a journey into the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable. We will test your senses and challenge your beliefs. A world where science and religion clash. Or do they? You will meet real people and hear real stories, but you will not believe. You will witness strange sights and hear strange sounds, but you will not believe. This is the New England Ghost Project. Welcome to the Good evening, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Ghost Chronicles International. I am Ron Kolick, your host, the gatekeeper to the realm of the unknown, the unexplained, and the unbelievable New England's own Van Helsing. And with me, all the way from across the pond, is the rock parapsychologist himself, Mr. Cal Cooper. Good evening, Ron. How's it going? Wow, it's good to have you on the show again. <laughs> I know, I'm sorry, it keeps on taking in turns with Steve. I keep on ending up all over the place in obscure areas of the country. I, I yeah, think, I'm, uh, actually, I'm actually getting used to him. Just, yeah, I know, I'm sorry, he's becoming more of the co-host. <laughs> Don't worry, I'm back now, I'm back. Uh, you know, you know what's, what's really interesting is that, I mean, you seem like you really have an interesting life. I mean, is it is it... What's taking up your time? Is it your academic or is it events? Is it Nori? At the moment, because because I've produced the book, um, Mm -hmm. certain old foundations in the UK, like we have the Ghost Club that's been going for a bit longer than the Society for Psychical Research. And uh, Harry Price was a one-time president of the Ghost Club as well. Really? Uh, yeah, uh, uh, during the 1930s, I think he was one of their presidents for the Ghost Club, and there's a really nice old photograph of him doing one of the presidential talks at one of their magnificent dinners, and it's a beautiful photograph in, in this extravagant hall. And um, I went to Marble Arch in London and gave a talk to them last weekend. And um, so it's been a lot of traveling up and down the country, because I have to travel from Portsmouth into London, through to Northampton, through to Nottingham. Um, I've got another talk coming up for the SPR in London the week after next. And at the moment, I'm in uh, Northampton. I'm not in Portsmouth. Today, I've spent an entire day um, teaching high school students or college students that are are doing their A-levels. They're not quite ready for university yet, but they've been visiting the university to see what it's like. Um, So one of my jobs today was um, I was asked to teach those that were interested in parapsychology. So they, they got a choice to do anything that they liked. They could do tests of... ESP with Zener cards, or they could um, investigate the sense of being stared at or precognition. And we had, I think I got the biggest group actually, I won them over with my talk, and I got two big groups of students doing haunting investigations, because our psychology department here actually has an area of the building that's haunted. Um, Oh, that's so cool. Yeah, it's pretty cool. We set up different locations that were decoys and weren't known to be haunted, and the one that was known to be haunted and most of the experimenters didn't know which one was the haunted location. So they took participants 
to each designated area to see if they could sense which area was haunted. And then the other group was doing tests for the sense of being stared at, and they were using a, a two-way mirror. Um, so they could stare at someone in a room and the person had oh, to say... Oh, that's a good idea. Yeah, they they had to say out of so many trials, they had to raise their hand if they felt they were being stared at out of so many. I mean, it seems very quick and simple. I mean, it, it was just to give these um, college students a taste of what the studies are like. I mean, these studies, when we're properly running them, they can take weeks, months, even years. They had to um, come for the day and they had to produce a whole study within a few hours. You know, they, they were quickly right. thrown, thrown in at the deep end told about what parapsychology is basically, they chose what they wanted to do, they quickly designed a study, collected about 10 participants and then just did a, a very quick and simple statistical analysis just using fractions, percentages, taking the means and produced a poster that showed their introduction, their methods, their results and discussion and it was really really positive stuff um, but I, I'm here for a few days now doing this and then I'll be on my moves again. So I've been really busy with many things at the moment. I just keep on getting caught in all sorts of strange places. Well, I mean, it's an interesting life that you live, Mr. Cal Cooper. I, so, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's interesting. You, you talk about the, the steering thing. I, I, I actually use in uh, uh, several of uh, my classes, and uh, it, it's, a, it's a little thing I have everybody turn around with their eyes closed and, and st sit in a row. So, and then uh, I have a uh, uh, one volunteer on the other side facing them, and uh, I'll be behind them, and then all of a sudden I'll put my hand up, and when I put my hand up, whoever senses it, feels it, whatever, is supposed to do the same. So it's it's kind of an interesting little experiment. And, we you know, we do this several times, so it's kind of neat to see that some people really get it. And oh, either that or they cheat real good, one or the other. <laughs> but it, 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 it's kind of cool because you do get that that statistic. And then, and then the other one, it, it almost seems as if uh, they start off you know really bad, but then they they manage to get it. So it's kind of a neat little experiment. And it's similar to your. I like your double, your uh, your uh, glass one, your one way glass. I think that's a great idea. Yeah, we were confused today, so most people were confused as to what to call it. Is it one-way mirror, is it a two-way mirror, or is it a one-way window, or a two-way window? No one kind of knew, so we just said, go in that room with a funny glass thing. There you and, go. Uh, and just start the experiment. Um, no, but, I think that's a great idea, Kel. Oh, it's good. I mean, we've just had the entire psychology block here at the University of Northampton redone. And that room is usually rigged with CCTVs, so, you know, you don't have to use the, the window mirror. <laughs> you can just use the CCTV monitors. And some of the more advanced uh, studies of staring have been uh, using CCTV as well. Can people detect that they're being watched by someone on the other end of the CCTV uh, camera and the monitor? Um, uh, as well as, you know, uh, when someone's in the same room as them, is it the same effect? And that's something that I sort of tested for my undergraduate dissertation. Um, oh, really? I, went out into the, I went out into the public and did staring detection rather than putting people into the lab. And this is where, you know, I'm not a massive fan of laboratory research. And this is where Steve's mentioned before the big divide between ghost hunters and parapsychologists. Parapsychologists tend to stick to more lab-based research, whereas the ghost hunters and psychical researchers go out into the field, which you rarely see the parapsychologists doing. And I didn't want to do a lab-based study of staring detection. I wanted to try and capture it in the real-world environment where people experience it. And it's interesting when you look at some of Rupert Sheldrake's general findings, because he said that you're more likely to detect 
a stare from a stranger, you're more you have a sort of a more uncomfortable feeling about you when you're in a public area and you turn around and all of a sudden you notice a state a stranger in the crowd is staring at you. He found that there was still an effect with people that you knew, but it wasn't as strong. So there were varying levels depending on who the people were and in what situation you were in. But I certainly found that when I went into the real-world setting and I, I was staring at people I didn't know at distance, I never approached them, I didn't say they were taking part in the study, they would still fidget and then move and then look around from what they were doing and then if they caught you, their eyes would fix on yours and you'd have to kind of look away. The problem was you couldn't kind of approach them afterwards or I didn't approach them afterwards and ask them. Um, there's one other field study that did, but... You know, they could just say, well, I felt uncomfortable. You can't really put it down to them definitely knowing that you in particular were staring at them. I think they've just had this unexplainable sense of discomfort, really. And I think it could be the staring effect. It's a possibility as to why they're actually stopping what they're doing to look around and stare. It's a powerful thing. Do we know what the staring effect is? I mean, do we have any, any comprehension of uh, what allows us to be able to detect it. Well, I've certainly said at least for the person staring, it's a conscious thing. I mean, you might drift off into a daydream and you might forget that you are staring, but to some extent it's conscious that you're staring at someone doing something and they could be facing away. For the person receiving the stare, it's, it's most likely unconscious because they're not aware of what's going on behind until they get this discomfort and turn around. But it's certainly some form of mind-to-mind interaction, as though you're kind of invading their space in a way, which is why I've always thought it might have evolutionary roots. You know, it's a defense thing, you know, someone's invading your territory or they're about to attack you or something like that. Right. I mean, I I remember uh, seeing this uh, program on uh, the fear of darkness because, uh, believe it or not, there aren't really too many really dark places in our world, never mind our country, uh, because we're so uh, lit up now with everything. If you go you go in space and, you know, take a look at it, you can see areas are quite bright. And, and of course, they, uh, they scale the darkness. And it was very difficult to get a, a very, you know, high scale of darkness, like a 10 was almost impossible. Uh, in any area between, like, moonlight and, and our own light sort of thing. I mean, we know that ourselves. It, it, any astronomer, astronomer does, because when he goes to look at uh, uh, stars in the, in the sky, he can't if he's anywhere near a, a city, because it just, you know, the light just destroys it. But anyways, they were one of the things they did talk about uh, is the fear of the darkness, and, and that was because in the early times... Uh, predators would come out at night, and so that's yeah. how we fear the darkness. And we perhaps this is the same mechanism that that you are talking about that that we developed uh, in our brain somewhere, primarily mm. brain, I guess you could say. Yeah, Dr. Richard Broughton has always kind of followed the sort of e- evolutionary path of siphonoma, believing that it it might have had a purpose, and he's always presented research saying if. If you want to figure out what psychic abilities are like, you could turn to mechanics in a way, or at least theories of mechanics. So if you want to know what psychic abilities are for, first find out how it works. Or if you want to know how it works, first find out what it's for. Um, probably got that the wrong way around. But um, I certainly believe that when you look at clairvoyance, telepathy, precognition, they all seem to have good evolutionary roots and are very good when you do compare them to things like um, hunting and so forth. But they've been... 
um, overlooked over the years. Certainly when you look at the late 1800s and some of the literature that's about there that discusses um, remote staring detection or the sense of being stared at, they actually dismissed it and said, well, it's down to fantasy proneness or fiction. Um, there isn't really um, a staring sense going on. It's just delusional that you're turning around and assuming that because someone's staring at you, you sense the stare. And it wasn't really until the 1970s and 80s that it was picked up and Rupert Sheldrake was doing studies very much like what you uh, suggested with your classes where you're in the same room, you could be sat back to back and there could be trials of staring periods and no staring periods. And, uh, you know, when you added up the statistics of how many times they got it right and how many times they got it wrong, it appeared something was going on. It appeared there was some sort of psychic effect occurring. So it's continued on since then. And Rupert Sheldrake wrote a brilliant book discussing it called The Sense of Being Stared At. And it discusses mainly that research, but also things like telephone telepathy. And, um, some oh, yeah, that's things. a cool one, too. Right? Yeah. Yeah. He um, He's done several studies of that, and I think even here at the university, they've done some qualitative analysis of looking at people's accounts of experiencing telephone telepathy. But he even did a, a famous one where he went on, uh, D Dr. Rupert Sheldrake went on telly with the Nolan sisters, and he got one of the sisters to go off into a different room, and he get the other sisters to call her, and uh, she'd have to guess who it was before she picked up the telephone, and they got really good results. Um, is that does it work better when it's with people that are close to you? But then again, there are loads of accounts where there's people that you've not spoken to in years. The telephone rings, and you say, oh, that's John. I haven't spoken to John in ages. You pick up the phone, and lo and behold, it's John. It's very strange. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, uh, you know, I, I like you, Cal, because you, at least you're, you're open-minded to understand, you know, at least study these things. I mean, uh, Recently, uh, I became under criticism because of my class on uh, paranormal CSI, and in my class, and, and basically, people didn't understand it. Uh, you know, it's more of a thought process than like a ghost hunting how-to class. We use yeah. modern, you know, the no, I should hate to say modern, but we use the popular ghost hunting tools uh, to use this, as well as some of the the ancient ones. And I get a lot of criticism because we used ancient, you know, like dowsing and so forth. I mean, and, and these people have read an article on Wikipedia, and that is their source for uh, their knowledge of dowsing. I mean, how can you criticize a particular uh, technique or uh, train of thought unless you study it? I mean, it, you just can't do it. You really can't understand it unless you try to. Uh, yeah. Then you can. I mean, then if you you study it and you say, okay, well, this is what that's fine. I mean, that's still your opinion. But I mean, do you kind of agree with that or, or not? Oh yeah, totally. I mean, uh, I think we've discussed quite a few times before on the show that um, some of the researchers that are, are doing okay in the paranormal are ones that. Um, hold an extensive library. If you've read around your subject and you've read where it started, you've read where it went to, you've read different people's current thoughts and opinions, you've read experiments for, experiments against, and then you know what pitfalls you can come against. So, you know, you can better yourself as a researcher if you can familiarize yourself with what's out there. You know, I would never, ever suggest anyone stick to one particular source. You know, just reading a Wikipedia article or something like that. You've got to read around the subject. It's like that for anything with um, university-based studies. You wouldn't just take away what the lecturer has said and 
you know what was in the particular lecture that you went to see. You'd take away that lecture information and go and read about it, read around the field to better your knowledge and better the essays that you produce, so you can critically think through it. So I, I think for anything, ghost hunting, testing psychic abilities, if you can read around the subject, it will better yourself as a researcher. You know, I absolutely agree. And, and just because, uh, you know, somebody tells you things doesn't necessarily mean it's, it's absolute truth. It's their truth. It's what they believe in. You know, I remember in college, uh, there was a, a lecturer, uh, well, a teacher, instructor, or whatever, uh, and she had told me something, and I forget even what, it, what the thing was, and uh, when I did my paper, I actually disagreed with her, because I didn't believe, uh, you know, what she had told me, uh, and I researched it, and this is, I said, I don't really believe what you're telling me, and these are the reasons why, and these yeah. are the references that I quoted, and I actually got the highest mark in the class, and I disagreed with the subject at that time. Oh, nice. Well, that, that's the, the perfect sign of a, you know, a good academic. Um, I remember a few classes where some people that did produce essays, I think it was when I was studying consciousness, some people did actually produce essays that were based around the lectures that we'd had. And I remember getting a good grade for one of the papers that I did because I didn't actually mention anything that had come up in the previous lecture. Um, it was just everything that I'd gone away and researched and um, it had nothing to do with what I'd previously been taught by that lecturer. And he was impressed because I didn't mention anything from the lecture. You know, nothing that he'd mentioned had turned up. And he thought, that's great, you've gone away, you've read around the subject, you looked at the fors and against and then you've reached a conclusion. You know, and it's a tricky subject when you come to consciousness and look at things like free will. Do we have control of our actions or does the environment have control of our actions? So, you know, it's quite tricky stuff to go into. But it's certainly with regards to the paranormal, don't rely just on the Internet sources and watching paranormal TV shows. If you can track down the old books and the original sources of these information, especially through the Society for Psychical Research or the American Society for Psychical Research, which both have a vast amount of literature on the subject, you know, you really will be winning them because you've got access to a wealth of knowledge. Absolutely. You are listening to Ghost Chronicles International with uh, Mr. Cal Cooper. And uh, are you not a doctor, right? No, not yet. Okay. Still so, Mr. Cal Cooper and uh, New England's own Van Helsink, Ron Kolick, right here on Tojinet, Pararex, Ghost Channel, and beyond. If anybody wants to call in, by the way, the number is 877-864-4869. That's 877-864-4869. We'd love to hear from you, your thoughts on the matter. Uh, or you can join us in either the Tojinet or the Pararex chat room. So, uh, there you go with that. But, you know, the, the interesting thing is... To me, I'm, I'm all about doing things. You know, it, it's good to read about them and everything else. But, I mean, for instance, if I'm going to uh, read about astral projection, okay, I'll go to the sources and stuff. But I'll also want to experience it myself or at least attempt to and do some experiments. To me, right. that, that adds a lot more to um, your knowledge. Have you actually tried to astral project then? You know what? I, I think the best thing to do is let me, let me ask you this, Cal. Okay. What would you define astral projection as? Um, I suppose I could call it an out-of-body experience, really. But actually, being able to consciously control that out-of-body experience and travel to where I want to travel. So, is it 
Uh, Ash, well, okay, okay, I, I, I know what I'm doing. I'm thinking, uh, yeah, that was my bad. I, I was actually thinking of remote viewing. Um, right. but, <laughs> in, in remote viewing, you see a particular place and where astral projection, you actually project yourself to that place. Yeah, that's right. I mean, um, people like um, Attila von Zelay, who was involved in the original um, EVP academic studies with Raymond Bayliss, he was a well-known astral projector, and when he projected himself to places that Raymond Bayliss would be at, Raymond said that he saw a sort of apparition-type figure or a small mist moving about. So it's as though the soul has somehow briefly left the body and travelled about, but of your own conscious free will, you can actually control where you want to go. Whereas a lot of the time you could say that the out-of-body experience, you haven't got a lot of choice over where you're travelling to. You could just rise above the body and then go back again. Whereas right. the remote viewing, that's you're sat in a room, but you can see the location at distance and guide yourself mentally around it. You could try and picture yourself actually being there, but a lot of the times, especially when we've done it in the university-based setting, a lot of the reports come back that people try to pitch the place inside their head. They weren't actually at the location, like astral projecting. Mm-hmm. So, so you think that that is the case with uh, they weren't really... if. If they, even though they, they might have seen it in their head, they weren't really there by astral projection. I, I think if it's remote viewing, then you're looking more at sort of clairvoyance in a way. So you're picking up information that's at a distance. The, the mind is trying to send and receive that information. If you're going into the astral projection and out-of-body kind of area, then you're sort of meditating and sort of falling semi-unconscious in a way so that the, the consciousness can leave the mind and travel on to these locations as though you're there and in some right. cases people do report something strange being there which coincides with you saying well I was having an out-of-body experience at that time or I was purposely astral projecting as Attila von Zelay used to say he was doing uh, for people listening one of the best like source of information for reading on astral projection um, well actually there's one book edited by D. Scott Rogo called uh, Beyond the Body and then there's a series of books by Dr. Robert Crookle um, if you can find those, they're really good and loads of information on astral projection because Robert Crooker was a massive um, fan or more so interested in this sort of thing. And Rogo and Bayless just loved it. They thought it was quite unique at the time, around about the 70s. So do you think, I'm, I'm trying to sort this out in my own mind, is it <laughs> perhaps that astral projection is more of a, Subconscious, in other words, you really have to be uh, not conscious to do it ver- versus remote viewing where you're not quite at that point. So maybe is there a difference? Like perhaps remote viewing is the first stage of astral projection. In other words, you're actually, you're not allowing yourself to go into that complete uh comatose or whatever you want to call it or, or alpha state or whatever it is yeah that, that's that's a good point i've never actually thought of it in that way but that i suppose that does actually make sense in a way if you do think of it in a stage if you've not if you manage to train yourself to a remote viewing level i suppose the next stage if you continue to say practice meditation or something you could get to the point where you do get into this state where you can actually leave the body and travel on um, so, uh, yeah, I suppose you could think of it in terms of stages. I mean, the main people that I've heard report astral projection and going to these locations and reporting what they're like, from what I've read, a lot of them were mediums that uh, had practiced and then became good at astral projection. 
Um, again, the people that I've worked with are mainly ones that we've told them what remote viewing is. We've given them either procedures by Major Paul Smith as to how to remote view, or as I've mentioned before, the Gansfold procedure. We've used a Gansfold, closed down people's sensors by um, cutting off uh, vision, um, using the ping pong balls over the eyes and the red light. They've got the static in their ears after they've gone through a relaxation tape and they're in a big reclining chair. They're all relaxed. And they just try and picture themselves traveling to this location. And they just tell you everything they can about all the images that come to them, the sounds. So they're very much conscious of being in the same place to an extent. You know, if you poked them, they could feel it. Uh, if they wanted to sit up, they can do. I think those that are in an astral projection state, they're probably in a state where if you did give them a bit of a nudge or something like that, they probably wouldn't be as aware of it if they do claim that they're soul or the consciousness is leaving the body and from what i've seen from attila bonsley's descriptions of the astral projection it does seem like you do sort of drop into an unconscious state because something's left the shell of the body yeah it does it makes sense anyways i I know that we're coming up on the break and i did want to mention uh, a couple things first of all uh, you are going to be on uh, 30 odd minutes tonight i believe Yes, I am. It's going to be a late one, so um, I'll make sure I drink plenty of tea and coffee. <laughs> All right, and that's a live show. You can actually go on their website, 30 Odd Minutes, and uh, you can watch the show live, but it's also uh, syndicated in, in a ton of places. So uh, you're going to be – the Cal will be there tonight, so I would check that out. Uh, and uh, you, of course, are coming here in July. And yeah. We, we will have to uh, see if we can work up for Spirit Quest, which is going to be a, an awesome event at the end of July, and some other things, too. But uh, before you get here, uh, you and I, if you have the time, is to, to take a short period of time, maybe devise a couple of experiments that we can have ongoing at Spirit Quest that we can uh, collect some data on and maybe uh, get some results on. I think that would be a great idea. Yeah, definitely. Um, I know we're going to um, a few locations. I'm especially looking forward to when we'll actually be working with the public and you and I will actually be helping the public develop some of their skills and then we might actually in turn learn something from what they've been doing. And um, also with uh, Ross coming over as well, I know we might be speaking to him on the next um, show. He'll be coming on as a guest. Actually, Um, no one knows about this. No one knows about... You can break the news right now. Should I? Do you want me to, or should we save it till next week's show? Well, I was going to save it, but that's fine. Oh, let's, let's save it. I've only mentioned the first name, so people won't be able to find out. I only mentioned the first name. Let's save it till next week's show. There you go. Yeah, we'll save it till he comes on. Um, okay. But yeah, certainly with what we're doing, I'm really looking forward to that. So I think um, if we kind of set out where we're going to go to, who's going to be there, then we can come up with some sort of experiments that we could run, and the public uh, will certainly be interested in so like watching something live if we can set something up. It sounds like a good idea. Well, anyways, I hear the music, which means we're coming up to the break. Uh, you are listening to Ghost Chronicles International with Mr. Cal Cooper and New England's own Van Helsink, Ron Kovac, right here on Tojanet, Pararex, Ghost Channel and Beyond. And we'll be right back after the following. Oh, wait a minute. It looks like I got another 30 seconds. You know, I swear I hear music there. You know what? I, you maybe that was uh, Creek. What do you call that? Maybe I got a, uh, a lead-in from the, the future. Precognition. Precognition, that could be it. <laughs> you you were anticipating the Adams Family music. It's it's that entertaining. You wanted to hear it. Well, 
Well, it usually starts off at the beats, but uh, anyways, I've just been informed that the tunes are on now. So, <laughs> I mean, that, that, that's interesting. For some reason, I don't get the tunes anymore. So, anyway. No, I, I couldn't hear the beats. That's why I was a bit confused. All right. So, we'll be right back at the following messages. Welcome to Tokinet, radio with a cutting edge. They're creepy and they're kooky, mysterious and spooky. They all talk gobbledygooky, the Parrax family. The shows are paranormal, not stuffy but informal. The topics are abnormal, the Parrax family. They're strange. Unrestrained. So grab your favorite brew. It's time to rendezvous as we give the awards to the Bear X family. Alright. Hi, I'm Ron Kolick, author and lead investigator of the New England Ghost Project, New England's own Van Helsink. And I'm Ann Kerrigan, the blonde bombshell, and I'm the lead investigator of East Bridgewater's Most Haunted. And we'd like to invite you to tune in. Ghost Chronicles, the next generation. Every Wednesday night. At 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time on www.toginet.com. So, so yeah, what are they going to hear on this stupid show? What are they going to hear? They are going to hear things that they can't believe are happening. Like uh, Beyond Bizarre. And Cemetery Tripping. Oh, that's your deal, right? Absolutely. Yeah, one of these days you're going to get uh, so scared of one of these cemetery tripping things that uh, you'll, I'll have to get a new co-host. <laughs> I am brave beyond belief. Nothing yeah, we'll see. scares me. Except- so anyways, if you're bored and you got nothing to do on Wednesday night, tune in to Ghost Chronicles Next Generation with Anne and Ron. See you then. We are back. You are listening to Ghost Chronicles International with the rock parapsychologist himself, Mr. Cal Cooper, in New England's own Van Helsink, right here on Tojinet Pararex, Ghost Channel and Beyond. Yeah, you got the people buzzing about who who's coming over now. Ah, uh, right, then it's best to leave it a secret. Just leave them in anticipation. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, I'm going to get nasty letters now. It's all your fault. <laughs> <laughs> Any, anyways, uh, we actually have a, uh, a Beyond Bizarre uh, available, and I think that uh, we're going to play that now. So this is Beyond Bizarre from my favorite girl, Vala Ventura. The Ghost Ship. Nautical lore is rife with stories of ghost ships. One of the oldest and most celebrated of these stories, the tale of the Sarah, started with a lover's quarrel. The year was 1812, and two young sailors, George Leverett and Charles Jose, set out from their native Portland, Maine, to South Freeport to build and stock a ship they planned to use for trading in the Indies. It was there that the pair met and fell in love with Sarah Suley. Both men vied for the lady's attention, but in the end, it was Leverett who won her hand in marriage. Dejected and angry, Jose disappeared. 
It wasn't until Leverett was married in his rig, the Sarah, was sailing due south that Jose reemerged as captain of an unmarked ship that was trailing the Sarah. Spooked, Leverett and his crew changed course, hoping to report Jose to the British Admiralty, but they never made it. Jose's ship fired its cannons, killing all the other ship's crew and nearly sinking the Sarah. Miraculously, Leverett was not killed, so the vengeful Jose jumped onto the deck of the Sarah, tied the captain to the mast, and set him out to sea. Leverett resigned himself to death. He was floating on an open sea in an unmanned and badly damaged vessel. It was then that the truly astonishing began to happen. Leverett watched, horrified, as his crew slowly came back to life, resuming their posts one by one. The pale and silent crew then started guiding the ship toward home. Leverett lost consciousness. The ghost crew sailed the ship safely all the way to Potts Point, Wales. Onlookers from the shore reported that one foggy day, a dilapidated but fully rigged ship materialized from the gloom and came to a full stop. An apparently lifeless man was then lowered from the ship onto a smaller boat and rowed to shore. The crew, silent and pallid, never said a word. Once their cargo was safely laid on a rock, they returned to the ship and slowly sailed away. The ship was never to be seen again. Captain Leverett regained consciousness and lived to tell the tale. A terrifying tale from the Book of the Bazaar, available wherever books are sold. That's a classic ghost legend. <laughs> yeah, you know what? Uh, there's actually, uh, you know, in my book, Ghost of Day, uh, it's uh, 365 ghost stories from around the world. Yeah. And, and one of the interesting ones is, uh, is, I believe, the guy's name was Slocum. He was a uh, solo yachtist, and uh, he traveled around the world, world solo, uh, uh, broke the record and everything else. And he left uh, Nova Scotia one day and ran into a heavy storm. And, uh, you know, he tried to fight it, but he couldn't keep the, the ship, you know, going straight. And uh, yeah. he was exhausted, so he went to, into the cabin to die, basically. He lay down. And then when he woke up, he found the, the boat traveling straight and level. So he went out to the door, and there was a man at the wheel. And uh, he approached the man and asked him who he was. And he said he was the, I believe, the navigator from the Nina, you know, the Nina Penina and Santa Maria. And uh, he collapsed. And you know, when he woke up, he was seized with crime. And so supposedly, this is a up and up guy. He said that he swears in the Bible that he saw the navigator from the Nina. And it saved his mm. life. I love these yeah. nautical ones. Those those are so cool. Yeah, I, I don't know a lot about them. I mean, I haven't got any personal stories that I can remember of, of various accounts. I mean, obviously, you always remember the Mary Celeste and uh, that being completely empty with all the dinner still being hot and stuff. But, you know, it's not so much a ghostly story. It was one that actually happened where they turned up on the boat and everyone had mm -hmm. disappeared. Um, but I do love the ones where ghostly hands are always steer the ship to safety. I've heard yeah. it a lot of the time with cars where someone's fallen asleep at the wheel or there's a dangerous bend and they couldn't turn the steering wheel and ghostly hands took over their own hands and mm -hmm. steered the car to safety or even in some cases tried to make the car crash. Um, yeah, right, weird, yeah. weird ones where ghosts help and sometimes they hinder. Yeah, you know what's interesting too, isn't it King George that saw the Flying Dutchman? 
Um, I think so. I'm not 100% sure on that one. Like I say, my knowledge of the, um, the nautical ghosts and stuff isn't that great. Um, I wish I knew more. I should really start reading up on Ghosts of the Sea a bit more. Yeah, it's, it's a fascinating subject. That's perhaps another book. Uh, but <laughs> in, in that one, uh, yeah, King George, when he was not king, of course, he was in the Navy. I believe it was King George. Uh, and it was one of the kings anyways. Uh, one of your kings. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, he saw the Flying Dutchman while he was in it. And he put that in the log. So, interesting. Mm. Mm. So that's all cool stuff. I mean, but uh, yeah, that's what I loved about the paranormal. There's, there's so many avenues you can go down. You know, I mean, as far as uh, ghostly stories to ESP to phone calls from the dead. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I love these the ones that we've just heard. Um, they're classic ghost legends, mm -hmm. and they've probably got the the rational explanation of the the captain in the cases where they saw these apparitions. You know, they're either injured, they're tired, they're dying, they're starving, they're thirsty. And, you know, it could just be hallucinatory, but it's also a sensory experience that we can't argue against because they managed to make it back to dry land, safe and sound, when in fact they're in a position where they could have died. And they claim that such and such happened with these apparitions and it steered the boat to safety, when apparently they know that they've fallen unconscious because they woke up on the floor or whatever else. So something happened and they claim it's ghosts. But who are we to say otherwise? We can only just assume what could have happened. Right. And, and you know, maybe, and, and this is I'm just a conjecture, is maybe you need to be in that state to see spirits at times. Maybe not everybody can just see them like that. Maybe with their body is, is tired, their, their brain starts to shut down. Maybe their other senses kick in, and that's when they really can see spirit. Don't oh, yeah, know. totally. Totally. I was discussing that with some students today, the ones that were doing the, the haunting investigation. Mm -hmm. And they were trying to decide whether, with the particular location of the, the psychology block that was haunted, how do you determine whether being able to sense a particular area is haunted? How can you determine whether it's a haunting is a subjective thing or it's an objective thing? And I said, well, there are so many different things that can kind of come in place that can decide one or the other. If it's just a person that sees an apparition and no one else does, then it's very subjective. Um, but it's a sensory experience at the end of the day. If three people um, are in location, only one of them sees the apparition, again, it's somewhat subjective. It starts to become more objective if all three of them see it. Um, but it's still not, you know, it's not having an effect on the environment so much unless we bring in poltergeist activity as well. And... Um, there were so many different avenues I took them down just to say, look how complex it can actually get. And, um, you know, at the end of the day, the most important thing is documenting the person's experience and understanding their point of view of the experience. Because if it's a haunting, they're probably not the only people that are going to report this. There could be some people a week later that are going to have the same experience that have nothing to do with previous people. They might be in a completely different psychological mind state. And, and so forth. So something seems to be going on that suggests that it's something objective in a way. It's not completely psychological. I, I agree. And <laughs> that's the interesting thing is that we, we don't know, but you have to look at all aspects of it. You have to look not only the normal ways, but you have to look at alternative 
suggestions as well. I mean, okay, we can't explain this exactly, but then again, maybe this is another reason. So you work at a, a different hypotenuse. Hypotenuse, yeah. Wow. <laughs> you nearly said hypotenuse. A different yeah. hypotenuse. Yeah, say that again. Different hypothesis. There you go. <laughs> so anyways, Cal, your, your book is called um, Phone Calls telephone, from the Dead. Telephone Calls from the Dead, yeah. And Telephone um, Calls from the Dead. Is it, yeah, is it available in the States yet? Um, it's available on Amazon.co.uk. I should re- I'll probably try and get it onto .com as well. I don't think it makes much of a difference. But people that are in the States can go onto Amazon.co.uk and buy it from there. Or they can still go to the web, uh, website and buy it on there. But certainly... Um, for Spirit Quest, I'll be coming over, bring some books over. Um, I'll be certainly doing talks on telephone calls from the dead. And um, also um, some stuff on Egypt. I'd like to start discussing that. That would make a, a brilliant workshop um, if people want to learn more about some of the ancient ghost sightings, but particularly Egypt, because I've been quite fascinated with the apparition and ghost documentation in their history. And um, I was discussing recently, because I've been involved quite a lot with the Alex Tanis Foundation for Scientific Research, and Alex Tanis was um, uh, a U.S.-based guy. He was born in um, uh, Maine, I think. And um, he's one of the few people that I can remember that's noted as being a parapsychologist, almost or an amateur parapsychologist, but also a psychic as well. And he had about five degrees or so and two doctorates. Um, so really, really smart guy in theology and um, counseling and psychology and psychical research. And um, he took study groups over to Egypt at least twice, and um, big, big groups, and they went to the Sphinx, they went to um, the pyramids, and they conducted seances and sittings and um, spiritual workshops to try and open people up to their um, psychic energies and, and so forth. I think he's a really interesting link to Egypt. There's not many parapsychologists that have done stuff on um, ancient or modern Egypt. It's more so been left for anthropology to look at. Um, But certainly there's a lot of spiritualists and early spiritualists that were quite interested, especially by saying um, their spirit guides or so forth were ancient Egyptians. Yeah, I would have. Yeah. (laughs) And there's a a famous um, case of Rosemary um, that was published in several books in the uh, 1970s, I think. It was about um, going through xenoglossy and uh, a woman going through a past life regression and coming out with accurate information about ancient Egypt and claiming that she was taking on this body of uh, an ancient Egyptian. I'll have to look at the exact um, book, but I'm sure it's called 30 Centuries Ago or something like that, or that the um, ancient Egypt speaks. Okay. You know, it's interesting, but the pyramids, of course, have that supposedly magical power. I remember back... Years ago, before I was interested in ghosts, I was still kind of interested in the paranormal because uh, we actually used to, uh, I I used to design and sell environmental teaching aids for schools, and one of the products we had was a thing called the Plant Talker, which was a biofeedback device for plants. And uh, it was it was pretty interesting, but uh, that was when the cigarette life of plants had come back out. I mean, that must be before you were born, I'm sure. But I do remember that at that same time, there was all this stuff on the pyramids. I mean, they used to take, like, razor blades and put razor blades inside oh, pyramids, yeah. and they would sharpen with the pyramid energy. Do you yeah. remember that at all? Uh, yeah, it's discussed in, I've mentioned it before, Lyle Watson, he wrote a book called Supernature. 
um, which is a very good book. Um, if you get that, that mentions the whole razor blades going inside the pyramids, going in blunt, and then when you go in to get it again, it's razor sharp again. Mm-hmm. So there's all, all these strange mystery, mysterious things centered around the pyramids. And there's loads of other weird things. I mean, I mentioned with Lyle Watson before about um, things that we interpret to be paranormal, um, but sometimes turn out to have rational explanations. Because I, I mentioned in my book, and from what Lyle Watson said, people's toasters talking to them in Dutch, or their curling tongs and hair dryers speaking dirty to them, and it was all to do with <laughs> local, ra- local radio frequencies interacting with electrical devices. Um, even someone's chainsaw suddenly bursting into song, and the guy dropped it and cut his toes off. Um, <laughs> But the stuff with the razor blades, that is weird. I don't know if anyone ever tried to look into it. I haven't read that much on it, but I don't know if anyone ever discovered why or how or if it's just remained a mystery to this day. Yeah, I know we used to play around with it back in the day, but uh, that was many, many years ago, before you were born, my friend. <laughs> but it's interesting stuff. I mean, that, that, that's, again, we, we, we somebody comes out with something, we take a look at it, uh, we just don't, you know... It, you just don't poo-poo it. You, you take a look at it, see, you know, try to understand it before you do that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Now go on. No, that's that's cool. I mean, that's that's the whole thing I think about knowledge is you, you really can't have knowledge unless you really try to learn. Oh yeah, I mean, this is the thing. This is why I brought up Alex Tanners because I am quite skeptical you know I'm, I'm very skeptical when it comes to the paranormal and when I started reading Alex Tanner's stuff when I got involved um, with the Alex Tanner's foundation I'm still quite skeptical of any skeptic that comes up to me and tells me that they have uh, control of their psychic abilities or they can talk to the dead um, so I, I rarely read any book that's centered around or written by someone um, that's um, claiming psychic abilities. And I've spoken to Steve about this before because my own personal library is very much centered towards survival research by s- psychical researchers. Whereas Steve, he said, you know, he, he's got more of a balanced library because he's got a lot of the stuff written by the spiritualists or those claiming psychic powers as well. So, you know, if you read both set of books, you've got good, uh, good knowledge of for and against. So it was really reading Alex Tannis' stuff I thought was interesting from the medium's perspective. And he came out with some extraordinary claims. He managed to, you know, aside from the razor blade stuff, those are strange, interesting things with objects. But from a person-centered experience, um, Alex managed to predict most of his um, family's uh, deaths before they happened. He'd do strange things where if he touched you, that was the thing that gave him the psychic connection, which I think is interesting. You always picture on TV shows that they have this sort of flash in their head, of, you know, flashing through someone's life when you touch them. Right. And that's sort of what he claimed to have. If he shook hands with someone, and, and which he did sometimes when one of his um, parents' friends came over and he was a little kid, he'd shake hands with them and all of a sudden he'd get this sort of flash of psychic inspiration in his head and he'd suddenly say to the adult, you're going to die of a heart attack tomorrow. And lo and behold, they did. You know, his parents would be very annoyed that he'd said that to them and say, why did you say that to him? And he said, it just came into my head. And his project, uh, predictions are always very, very accurate. Um, there's only a few times that I actually saw where he was either struggling or couldn't get anything. Um, but he's certainly quite a remarkable guy, and a strange link that he has knowledge of parapsychology and uh, certainly act and worked as a parapsychologist, but also possessed these abilities as well. Right. I mean... Maybe, I mean, I really don't know. Maybe there is 
energy transfer, and we don't know it. I mean, we, we talked about, uh, in the beginning of the show, about steering. Maybe there is some type of an energy transfer at that point, but from objects where you're actually touching things. I mean, in my paranormal study group, we always do a lot on uh, psychometry. And, uh, you know, it's an interesting subject, it, whether the energy is can be retained in objects, and, and not only can it be retained, are we actually able to read it? And so, so I've done a lot of work on that, and uh, I find it fascinating. But it, who knows, mm. you know, how far that energy can go, and 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 as far I mean, do you have to touch it, or perhaps like steering? Maybe we can do it from a distance as well, which is kind well, of well. Exactly. Is the touching necessary? I mean, look at the séance room. Does it make a difference whether people sat around the table or hold hands and complete a circle, or just sit in a circle? Um, you know, you've got the same sort of line of thinking with people that have build, uh, built stone circles. That's in a perfect circular formation. And certainly with Stonehenge, it appears that there was like a, a top to them. So they're all joined in uh, one way or another in a perfect circle, whereas you have other standing stones that are just spaced apart from each other. But does that help in a way? Does that increase energy by being in a circle and more or less touching? Um, there's only one way to find out, and that's to test maybe seances for and uh, with hand holding, without hand holding. But, I think that's uh, a great, you know, that's a great idea, and it's interesting because I believe my next paranormal study group. I think that I am going to have a. Uh, uh, Victorian spiritualist in, uh, where she does uh, Victorian seances and maybe yeah. that might be a good way to do it is uh, actually try it two ways yeah oh definitely um, you know seances uh, Harry Price did the classic one and it's probably been mentioned before but I love it I really really love it I think it's brilliant he basically um, creates an electrical current going around the seance so it was one way to try and eliminate um, people cheating or frauds, and you had slippers and gloves that were all working on an electrical system. If you took your hand out of the glove or out of the slipper, a light bulb in front of the participant at the table would light up. Really? That the, the glove had either come loose or the slipper had come loose. So if you had the slippers on and the gloves on properly, it would create a perfect um, current going round all the sitters and the light bulbs would stay off. So you know that no one is moving their hands, no one's moving their feet and touching things or tampering with things that they shouldn't be. I think that's great. I mean, no one's done that in recent times. But again, it was a very clever thing to do. But did it make a difference? Does it really make a difference whether um, you're sat in that circular formation and there is a connectedness between everyone around the table or could you just be standing in various areas of the room? Do you have to be sat around a table? Does it make a difference to the activity? Right. I don't know. That's, that's interesting. I think I will do some more research on it. You just gave me some new uh, fodder for my <laughs> brain. But anyways, right now we have to... Uh, we have a new cemetery tripping. I think it's a new one. Uh, we have a cemetery tripping by uh, my main squeeze uh, from Ghost Chronicles, Next Generation, the blonde bombshiller herself, and Carrigan, which, by the way, is now on Pararex every Wednesday night at 7 o'clock. So, cemetery tripping from Ann Carrigan. Welcome to Cemetery Tripping, where each week I will feature a different cemetery that I hope you will seek out and enjoy as much as I do. You can see my pictures on Facebook by doing a search for Cemetery Tripping, 
or following the link from the Ghost Chronicles Next Generation page. Today I would like to share with you a cemetery from Bucksport, Maine, appropriately named Buck Cemetery. This is a small family cemetery that would be fairly nondescript if not for the notoriety of one monument erected there, namely that of Colonel Jonathan Buck. He was born in Haverhill, Mass. in 1716 and founded the town of Bucksport in 1762. His family erected the large monument which stands at the front of the cemetery facing the main road approximately 60 years after his death. Mysteriously, an outline of what looks like a leg and a foot appeared on the face of the monument. Although an honorable leader of the community, who was key in the development of local industry, somehow a legend sprung up regarding the odd stain. The legend goes that Colonel Buck condemned a woman as a witch and sentenced her to death by burning. As the sentence was being carried out, supposedly the witch cursed him and said, So long shall my curse be upon thee and my sign upon thy tombstone. As she burned, her leg rolled out of the fire, and her deformed son, who was rejected by the community, grabbed it, further insulted the colonel, and ran off into the woods, never to be seen again. It is also said that attempts to remove the stain from the stone were futile, so they ripped it down and erected a second stone, only to have the stain reappear. No one really knows how this tale came about, but it is quite a story, and to this day the cemetery is a tourist attraction in the town of Bucksport. However, it only takes a small amount of logic and application of history to poke quite a few holes in it. The era of colonial witchcraft and the infamous Massachusetts trials were over long before Jonathan Buck was even born. There is no record of anyone being burned or otherwise executed for witchcraft in the state of Maine. In addition, this is the original stone, not a replacement. Stone cutters say this kind of stain is common after long exposure, but can be removed by repolishing and buffing the stone. However, when it is exposed to air, the surface will eventually oxidize and the stain will reappear. Due to the tourist attraction, the cemetery is surrounded by a wrought iron fence with ornamental spikes on the top, perfect to deter a cemetery tripper like me from entering the site. And believe me, I tried. But it is a lovely historical site that deserves a stop if you are ever visiting the Bucksport area. There is also an awesome Fort Knox right across the river from the cemetery into which you can gain entry without injury. Yeah. Anyways, you are listening to Ghost Chronicles International right here on TojiNet, Pararex, Ghost Channel and Beyond with Cal Cooper and Ron Kolick. And I do want to mention one thing, too. This weekend, uh, we are lucky enough to have uh, Mr. Gettysburg himself, Mark Nesbeth, adventuring to New England. I don't think he's been to New England before. And uh, he's doing a ghost hunt at the Old Manch, which is a historic landmark. Uh, it was the home of Hawthorne. And it's right, the North Bridges on the property. And that's on Saturday night. And on Sunday night he's doing a uh, haunted cruise out of uh, Portsmouth, New Hampshire, and then on Monday night we'll be doing Dining with the Dead at the uh, Wyndham Restaurant, so it's going to be a fun time, and I think I think Dining the Dead might be sold out, but I, I think there are tickets available for the other ones. So anyways, Cal, uh, did you, do you notice that uh, cemetery house you went in the, and did some research on it and just didn't take the legend along? Yeah, um, I 
I, I was quite captivated by it, actually, especially the one, uh, well, specifically discussing the stains on the stone, um, uh-huh. not being able to remove it and stuff, uh, ultimately having to replace it. And that reminds me of so many classic things where people either gave a sort of a last curse to a place or even in some hauntings. But one that it reminded me of was, um, do you remember Ned Kelly, the uh, rebellious Australian fought back against the police and society? Yeah. And he, he wore the suit of armour and um, went out and ended up shooting the police. But he went to, I've forgotten if it was Sydney or Melbourne jail, but one of the last things he did inside his prison cell, the condemned man's cell, he wiped his hand across the dirt on the floor and pressed it against the wall, and it created a perfect outline of his hand. After that, when he was removed um, uh, from the prison cell, and they went and hanged him. Anyone else that went in the cell could still see this hand on the wall, and apparently they did try to wash it away, they tried to chip it away and paint over it, and every time they did, it still reappeared on the wall, which I find unusual. But I've heard quite a few cases of similar stuff like that. I mean, with one we just heard, it was blood. With this, it was dirt. But, you know, it involved a final sort of curse to those that had um, sentenced them to death, really. Well, I know the pizza's here, and I've got about a minute left, but I do want to mention one thing. Uh, uh, Mark Nesbitt, uh, I, I went down to Gettysburg and did some events with him oh, a couple of years ago when Richard Felix was here. And uh, one of the places we went to was the Lady uh, Daniel Lady Farm. And that's, you know, talk about stains. Uh, the, the house was used for the operating room for the offices, and they would bring the the people in, and they, they had to have to hit arms, basically, our legs amputated, and they would sit in around the, the room, and you could, today, you can still see bloody hand fruits in the wood. Uh, it's pretty pretty amazing. And But one of the cool things, and it's like 20 seconds, I know we're running out of time, but uh, one time, uh, he was called by the curator to come in, and uh, he says, you've got to come see this. So he drove down, and when he got to the place, he went to that same room where the operating room, and there was this rust-colored liquid on the floor. So yeah. he took a sample of it, and he videotaped it and took pictures and everything else. And uh, the, you know, and then after a while, after we recorded and everything else, he, he started going home. And he got about halfway home, and he got a call from the curry. He says, "You got to come back here." And so uh, he went back, and the liquid was all gone. And not only was it all gone, but where it was. If you put your hand down, there was a layer of dust, like it never existed. So then he remembered the sample that he had, and he ran out to check on that, and he still had it on the tissue. So he sent it out to a a laboratory, and it came back as human blood. Interesting. Anyways, time to wrap it up. So, good night. God bless. Good night, everyone. See you later. From ghoulies to ghosties, long-leggedy beasties, and things that go bump in the night. Deliver us, good Lord. This is Togi.